0: Good evening. American
1: led military attacks against targets throughout Afghanistan continue tonight, even as the first emergency food and medical supplies for the beleaguered Afghan people are in the air. And if there was any doubt about the role of Osama bin Laden in the September 11th
0: attacks, his threats to America tonight were a chilling reminder of his hatred. NBC's Jim Mikloshevsky is at the Pentagon tonight, with the latest on the early strikes and the continuing action in that part of the world.
1: Tom, the first of these military strikes appear to have just about ended for the night, but officials here at the Pentagon say these attacks are far from over.
2: It's Machine Kills!
3: Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 99 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always, and this week... It is our 9-11 20th anniversary extravaganza. Uh, We will be talking all things 9-11 all week long for episode 99 hitting you right now. And then episode 100, which will drop on 9-11 in the premium feed on Patreon. So you'll need to subscribe for that one uh like like we you know we we've joked before the long con has planned has has is finally paying off where we start tmk we we just hit our our year long anniversary or our year anniversary of doing tmk about a month ago and now we're hitting the 100th episode on the 20th anniversary of nine eleven. boys the forever war is finally ending and we did it, <laughs> we, did it. We, did it. <laughs> we did it mission accomplished <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) And to help us uh, reflect on the forever war machine um, over these last 20 years and the preceding decades before that and talking about what comes next, we are very pleased to be joined for this episode and the next one um, with... Kelsey Atherton, who is a military technology journalist um, who who just does uh, excellent coverage on this, keeps a close watch on defense tech, military tech, the deep, dark entanglements between uh, Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, um, all of that. Before we get into it, just to give you our dear listeners a little bit of structure of all the things we're going to be touching on over these next two episodes, uh, it, it is just—it's an immense amount to try to cover. Um, but we will—we will do our best. And so I think we need to cast our our minds back uh, first to the beginning of the global war on terror. You know, it's the it's the heady days of the early aughts. New Metal is topping the charts. The kids are getting their news from The Daily Show. Uh, George Bush and Dick Cheney are sacrificing countless souls to Lucifer so that Halliburton stock keeps rising forever. That's right. uh, <laughs> This is the global war on terror. Um, and so we'll, we'll do a little scene setting there, and then I think – What Kelsey is really going to help us do um, is try to provide something. I'm thinking of it as like like a DD beastery uh, of the weapons and intelligence systems that have been developed and deployed over these last 20 years. Like, impossible to keep in mind um, how all of these. All of this R&D has been happening through this like deep decades long entanglement between Silicon Valley and the Pentagon, along with all the demonic initials we love to hate, like the CIA, the FBI, NSA, DHS, ICE. And then from there, we'll we'll wrap it all up with a kind of structural analysis of the forever war machine. Um, I, you know, really, I think what we're going to try to do over these next two episodes is ask those questions of how we got here why it was overdetermined and what comes next with that scene setting uh kelsey thank you for joining us
0: (laughs) oh my absolute pleasure there's uh nothing i like more than bad futures and recently bad pasts yeah
3: (laughs) yeah and 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 somehow they they, those two things are are just so connected all the time the bad past and the bad future
2: reign of terror out now by spencer ackerman have to plug Who who knew it was the generation of kids that grew up playing with the little G.I. Joe action figures with all the vehicles and guns and shit like that were the ones that were going to be fighting these stupid, starting fighting these stupid forever wars.
3: So I think that's a good place to actually get into this, right? Like, you know, a kid born after 9-11. Could have been fighting in Afghanistan during the the you know in, in these last few months during the the pullout of Afghanistan and 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 the you know the fall of Kabul and all that right like like that that's absolutely fucking wild to think not only that but like the the toys right that that kid was playing with with his gi joes the toy planes and the joy the toy vehicles uh you know maybe he could have very well been riding in one of those planes or riding in one of those vehicles you know a scant 18 years later um so to start us off with this oh yeah i want to throw it over to you kelsey like give us a little bit of a sense of 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 the, the the vehicles and the planes and this all of these kind of weapons systems that have been developed for the war in Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: Sure, yeah. So that's a good that's a good angle to to say, I say, as though I didn't pick it. Um, but I think something really <laughs> compelling, right, is that the when the US had its its withdrawal, and there's a big asterisk on that I'll, I'll get to in a second, but when the US pulled out of Afghanistan, that last withdrawal. Um, among the uh, the several uh, uh, soldiers and marines who who died, um, they were a lot of them were twenty year olds. So right, we're talking about kids, uh, about uh, adults now who were months old on, on 9-11. And the uh, the median age in Afghanistan, I believe, is eighteen point five. And so this is a war that has really the the entirety of the war has happened in their lifetime or the us part of the war um so i um like uh like many was not i wasn't expecting the the islamic republic of afghanistan which is the government that was in power until all of august 16th to last forever i wasn't quite expecting it to fall by the 16th um in uh, functionally um well, we'll get to see later how the, the DoD internal assessments come out. And uh, it, the the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan report or Afghan reconstruction reports from CIGAR gave a real clear picture of that that was coming. Um, and so it's it's there's a lot of, we'll, we'll get a public debate over willful blindness versus just not there. But um, I wrote for, I write, uh, one of the places I regularly write is popular science. I wanted to cover how do we cover this news while talking about tech first. and. Of tech, We're going to get into sort of software and we're going to get into biometrics there. But I think the tech that most drew me to covering this stuff and really to writing about it is the big tangible things. I I, I grew up right next to an Air Force base. I got a fighter jets flying over my head as some of my just fundamental early memory. And so I wanted to look at the planes and I looked and I saw how did PopSci cover the invasion of Afghanistan by the U.S. in 2001? And they talked... Um, a little bit about the bombs and a lot a bit about the planes that dropped them or targeted them. The one um, sort of the the sort of granddaddy of all uh, U.S. wars abroad for the last half century and uh, likely uh, going to be a full century um, before it retires is the B-52, right? You've seen it in Doctor Strangelove. You've seen it in documentaries about the Vietnam War. Um, it was certainly above Iraq in um, the Persian Gulf War and um, It also showed up. um, It was used for uh, explicitly at the time. This is how the press described it. This is how the military itself described it is carpet bombing trenches occupied by the Taliban in October of 2001.
3: I think it's tough because like. All of this was twenty was only twenty years ago. Okay, yeah, twenty years is a very long time, but we routinely talk about things on TMK that were much longer ago than twenty years, right? Like like we're routinely trying to trace these like broad movements of political economy, broad movements of technological development over decades. But there is something very weird about that time period that makes it into this like memory black hole. Like 20 years ago, you know, I joke like, oh, you know, New Metal is topping the charts and we're all watching The Daily Show and and Bush is choking on pretzels and stuff like that. But like it it, there is something about it that seems like like this black hole that feels so much longer ago than it actually was and i think because of that we we have very short memories like we have a very i think we have good long-term memory but a very bad short-term memory well i think
0: also something that is really striking about um
3: especially um you'll see clips
0: coming around of like if you were younger than um if you're if you're just now like if you're too young to remember what it was like after 9-11 this is what it was like and it would be Sharing the tweets from like mainstream uh, national uh, television reporters talking about how dare the United States negotiate with the Taliban as though a country that withdraws and loses a war does not negotiate with the sovereign there. And it, but that was the whole atmosphere. It's sort of hard to um, capture the kind of bubble atmosphere of 2001 to 2004. Um, And in many ways, I'm glad that to no longer be existing entirely in that bubble, but it's, uh, it's sort of been forgotten, right? It's been memory hold. It's been siloed away. And it's the kind of thing where you can talk about like, oh yeah, like the, the good thing about 352 is it's super powerful. And the downside is it's "Eh, it's carpet bombing still, but you know, and like that, the thing, the fundamental trait of carpet bombing, which is sort of lost in um, and we'll talk about how the U S talks about bombing in the future real soon, but carpet bombing is, indiscriminate. It is you pick an area and you put a lot of explosives on that area. And some of those, bombs, most of those bombs go off. Some of them don't for a long time. There's a huge unexplored ordnance problem um, ordnance problem uh, in Afghanistan. And plenty of that, of course, dates to the the decades of war where the US was only was on the side of funding insurgents rather than the side of fighting them. But there's a lot of unexplored ordnance, And that is a problem for decades. Um, just as a point of reference right uh france to this day has an annual what they call the iron harvest where farmers in whether battlefields uh were battlefields of world war one still recover war material that's in the soil and then they like have to get bomb squads because you farmed up a bomb Um, and that's a thing and that's where we're a century past that right this is a problem there and that's what carpet bombing produces that's the that's a direct thing that comes of it
1: you know, I think it's also interesting that, like you said, the withdrawal with an asterisk, right? It also doesn't include like like you're saying here, the fact that what also is left behind, like one small element of the cost that gets left behind is the unexploded ordinance and also the kind of wiping away of that cost. I mean, like in wars and in general from or previous occupations of country and invasions of country in the Middle East. Was there ever ever any sort of discussion of like, oh, we need to like disarm the weapons we left behind? We need to uh, figure out what to do about the ordinances, or do they just dip? And that's not really like an issue. So this is actually a story
0: I was working on for Scientific American. They were asking, mm-hmm. what what's a tech angle for this? And I wrote it and it came out, um, it came out on the 30th, but it was looking at what is the U.S. responsibility towards when it hands over a base? I thought that would be really interesting. I thought we would be at a time when the government handed over was the one we stood up and not the one that drove the U.S. out and forced the collapse of the other. But um, there is a law passed as part of the NDAA, which is the big bill that funds the Pentagon every year, um, in the 90s when the U.S. was sort of winding down and sort of closing some bases in Europe that said the U.S. is no longer responsible um, the pentagon specifically is no longer responsible to pay for environmental cleanup of bases it doesn't use it can pay for them while they're there it can take care of them if there's like spills immediately that's obviously they're allowed to spend their money on cleaning up their own messes as they make them but it was to try to avoid getting saddled with like debt from like like if the us had pulled out of romstein and then the german government was like hey you made this mess it's toxic We're going to charge you for it. This bill would have said we can't actually do that by law. Um, And that's something still in effect. There are negotiated terms with the country when you go in, but like put huge air quotes over negotiated terms. There are terms the U.S. negotiates with who it decides is the sovereign actor, and then they're bound to those terms until the U.S. leaves. So there isn't really like there's a process for cleaning up use while you're there, right? Like it's tidying up your room. In a like it's tidying up your dorm, but when you leave, you're not on the hook for anything except it's the nation and the thing you're tidying up is burn pits or chemical leaks or, um, or leftover explosives. And there's programs, there's like a UN mission to clean up demining. There was one before the US war, there will be one after. Um, and that's just sort of a thing. Um, and so another thing I found to to, to move this all forward is, um, to, to think about this is. The B-52 was one of several aircraft the U.S. was using to bomb the Taliban as recently as like the first week of August. Um, so it's not just that like we carpet bombed, the Taliban went away, mission accomplished. Um we didn't even bother hanging a, hanging that banner for Afghanistan. But uh, it was used continuously and it worked in a sense for one campaign. And then it sort of kept being used and didn't really change the reality on the ground, except more people are dead and more people are around who have lost family to U.S. I bombs.
3: like this case study of the B-52. And we can talk about some of the other air power that's been in use that you've written about as well. But I like this case study for, for a couple reasons in, in part, because I think it's a really nice foil to a lot of the tech coverage. And I mean, we, we, we do it here on TMK too, which really focuses on like the high tech, you know, the, the smart weapons, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of like cybernetic systems of data collection and intelligence and surveillance and and you know the all, all of that kind of stuff, right? And you know we can talk about it uh, later in the episode, but you know the, the the innovations of defense and military tech around like the like the new um, Hellfire, uh, right? The what is it the the RF nine. Nineteen, I forget the designation, um, but you know, sometimes called like the you know the the ninja missile. I've seen it called right where it's like a, a inert. Yeah, the jinsu
0: a, a, or the sword missile. Yeah. yeah, yeah, an
3: inert missile that doesn't actually have any explosives, but instead has like six six uh, blades attached to it that can like slice through a uh, a car and you know not cause you know supposedly not cause a lot of collateral damage because it's not but all of that is to say those are the kinds of things that i think our attention teams tends to be captured by but the b52 is an interesting case study because it's a fucking old plane it was you know uh like the new you wrote in um, this piece in popsci as war report acknowledged quote the newest of the B52s used in Afghanistan was built in 1962 <laughs> right like like so these are these are planes that were being used in the Vietnam war and are are just you know still operating still being used and and this cluster, this carpet bombing right you you talk about how like you know the B52 has undergone a lot of upgrading but that that has largely been in the in the payload capacity. So in 2002, the B-52 was uh, uh, was capable of unloading up to 37,000 pounds of bombs in one run. Um, while in 2019, uh, an Air Force fact sheet state, uh, says the capacity is now up to 70,000 pounds of weapons, counting bombs and missiles. Right, so almost uh, doubling the capacity of what is ultimately a very Old and very dumb technology, designed to just rain down annihilation in a very uh, blunt way, um, not targeted, not precise, just you know, just 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 destroy everything in its in its path, and the, and I think that I mean that is interesting, right? That is interesting that that one the military spins. Has has an enormous budget, spends so much money on R and D and innovation and all of that, but at the end of the, the day, the the real like war horses of the of the military's arsenal are still these like are are still these technologies that have been in use for uh for you know over 50 years uh in use for for many many of our past atrocities and wars and still being used today.
0: The B-52 is a fascinating through line um, for how the military thinks of what it is and what its mission is because there were hundreds of them built and there's a much, much smaller fleet now. um, And a lot of the thinking happened, right? Because they were built by, they were built to do this, this kind of mass bombing and they were flown in droves over Vietnam, which is the first time they faced any real anti-air system that could destroy them. And then there's a lot fewer after that, but they're still kept around. They're adapted for a bunch of things. They have like air launched cruise missiles is a big thing for how you can still use a plane with that lift capacity to hit things far away. And then there's also just the internal Bombay capacity, which they're working on expanding. They're solving the problem or they're, Re-engineering the interior tech and like the avionics and the storage capacity to solve the problem that they see, which is insufficient boom, Um which is not like that's a, a bomber is is a is a machine of boom. That's that's what it does, but it's not the problem that was at hand. The US. Can did and would still have the capacity to bring more explosive force to a given point on the world than virtually anybody, um, especially if we're ruling out nuclear arsenals. In which case, there's like only Russia can also do that, um, and that's not the problem that the U.S. faced. That was sort of the tool they brought. Right? It's the the proverbial hammer at nails, but um, they kept upgrading. It, it does more now, but it doesn't do. Enough to change things meaningfully because war is fought on different dimensions than just can you put enough explosives in one spot on a mission? mission.
3: I I don't know, there seems to be a a very interesting, and, and maybe this can get us into talking a little bit about Um, the, the different mindsets of war, right? Because like the global war on terror, uh, you know, was meant to bring in this different mindset of how we fight wars, um, because now we're, you know, we're fighting against a different type of enemy. Uh, the, the, the battle space is global, um, you know, dominance, a domination of the battle space looks very different when you have to dominate everywhere, um, but at this at the at the same time so so many of the, the the greatest like debacles of military tech that we know about with like like the F-35, right? Or like um the fact that like the US military essentially uh abandoned, you know, there was all these reports about all the uh all the weapons and vehicles and uh ordinances that they left behind in Afghanistan, right? That as you were saying, right, they have they're like, it's not our problem to clean this up, right? Supposedly, you know, they they quote-unquote demilitarized a lot of the uh, a lot of the vehicles that they left behind by you know using like thermite grenades to burn through like core machinery so they were unoperational. But at the end of the day, like they left behind like. Like, I think I saw reports that now, uh, you know, uh, the Taliban has like the fourth largest uh, helicopter fleet uh, in the world now or something like that because they left behind so many helicopters. But also like these helicopters are famously uh, extremely uh, dangerous, just like, you know, like it's more dangerous to use one, (laughs) to be in one, (laughs) right? Right. Yeah. So one of the
0: things that's really fascinating, and there's there's various counts of the tech that like the Taliban has that the US um, sold to the uh, the Afghan national defense forces, and now the Taliban has. And if you see an estimate like that floating around, I know like the Telegraph had like a messy graphic going around. I'd take it at at most two thirds of what's there, just because a lot of that was lost before, a lot of it was sold, or some of it was damaged. But by and large, the US built a military that. Built a military forecast stand that was like, we're going to sell you these things. You have to buy American to get this stuff. And they designed it so that it would be sort of the way U.S. builds partner militaries by and large, especially if a country doesn't have its own like innate manufacturing capacity in the same scale, is you buy our stuff and then you hire our contractors to service these things. And that's how it works, is that we will sell you these. We'll set up a partnership. We'll train you. We'll train you how to fly these things. We will take your pilots out to the states and we'll train them on helicopters here and then we'll fly them back and you'll fly them there. And then for like helicopter maintenance, we'll bring our contractors or for air or the plane maintenance or the the MRAPs, the the big heavy um they're not tanks, but they're armored enough. It like it doesn't unless you're fighting actual tanks, it doesn't matter. Those heavy vehicles and the US built an army that was built on like how to stay plugged into US contract and supply chains. Um, It didn't send its highest stuff, but it did send stuff that was like preferably serviced by the U.S. This was a big debate. Um, We find it early in the 2000s to the extent that there was any military attention on actually doing Afghanistan. The Bush administration barely focused on it after the first few months. And we really get the big focus to Afghanistan when Obama comes into office like, ah, this is the war we should have been fighting. And now and it doesn't turns out it doesn't work out. Spoilers um, for history there was a debate of whether or not we should buy Russian equipment, if we should buy Russian helicopters, because those had already been in use there. They were used by the other neighboring militaries. They were things that they had familiarity with and could be serviced by local mechanics. And instead, we're like, we're going to sell them stripped down versions of US helicopters. And that's what the Taliban has now. And we'll see how well they're capable of maintaining them. We'll see if we get gray markets. I can't, I can imagine that if Eric Prince ever got the go-ahead to do gray market servicing of Taliban helicopters, he would. Um, that, that kind of mercenary mindset seems ideally suited there. As as much as a nightmare person he is, he seems like the exact kind of person to try to just make bank on,
2: on supplying U.S.-made repairs to a military that is heavily sanctioned, we'll say. I might be getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but like human society, for I would I would say probably the past hundred or so years has just been this like constant race to build the biggest and best guns, and like early on with like uh like germ and uh, gas, basically biological warfare was just kind of created in a sense that like you can destroy entire villages or towns or cities without losing its infrastructure because that's where the real, that's where the real, uh, worth was, was in the infrastructure of cities and towns. But then you realize like how unethical that was. And so, you know, you've got national treaties against uh, German gas warfare, even though it's still used and it's usually used by despots that are trying to, with a, with an iron grasp control their population. But you, we went within like of course of a handful of generations from that to just saying, fuck it, we're just going to drop a H bomb and destroy everything and anything in its path. And we'll rebuild from there. It's just a, you know, the drone warfare was kind of created in a sense where you can pinpoint target and Afghanistan was kind of like, a, <clears throat> let's give this a shot and see how this works before we like roll it out in cities where we actually care about the infrastructure.
0: Yeah, so drones are, I mean, drones are the, the the dead center of my beat. And it's something also that is huge. Afghanistan, it's impossible to tell the story of the United States, I think, without talking about it as a story of um, trying to use technology to solve the political problem of um, untenable military objectives and a refusal to negotiate with uh, the combatant parties. And so in place of a political Process and there's a host of reasons to to get into that, um, but like by and large, like the I mean, we we have uh, Donald Rumsfeld's refusal to accept a surrender from the Taliban um, in December 2001, and basically the the war's been on ever since um, in insurgent form. But the the drone, as we see it, the especially from the Predator, and then evolved to um, I say evolved as though it's a natural process, upgraded deliberately by human action to Reapers and Gray Eagles. Um, and other variants, is trying to solve with tech what politics won't do. And the approach there is we take a slow-flying, high-altitude plane without people on it. It's remotely steered. It's got someone manning a sensor station. It's got someone uh, looking forward and just keeping the avionics up. And we put anti-tank missiles on it. That's what the Hellfire is. Its origin is anti-tank. And the reason is it's small and it's guided. Um, and the idea being we can just, through our ability to collect information and match it to what we see on the ground, we could figure out who all the networks are, do a big network analysis, find all the nodes, find every insurgent group, find every insurgent leader and bomb them. And that was the pitch. That's the huge big pitch of this, this cleaner approach to drone warfare. It's sort of, when we get to the Jinsu, um, awful name, when we get to the sword missile, Um, It's a way to keep doing drone strikes while reducing collateral damage and the, um, in theory. Um, And the process there is if we replace the explosive with blades and a spinning motion, what we will have is the most viscerally upsetting kind of way to destroy a car. But I, as designed, only the people in that one car, rather than making the car explode and blow up other stuff. Um, The reality is, is, messier, um, as you might imagine, from a sword missile. But that's how, by and large, the the um, when the Obama administration came over, there was, there was work on this. Drone strikes predate Obama. They were a Bush era innovation They come really early. Um, as soon as the CIA uh, can point to an example that they said was, oh, we had eyes on bin Laden with a Predator drone, but we didn't have a way to shoot him, and we didn't have aircraft that could get there in time, and we didn't want to risk a cruise missile because he was on foot and moving. Um, they're like, why don't we just put missiles on these things? And they do, and then the Reaper is built to carry more. As soon as we get to that stage of the war, it's an idea of, we will solve this with tech, and our intelligence will be good, we will know the right things, we are making the right call, and the end result is um, just a lot of bombed weddings, there's a whole payment process for condolence payments that families could apply to for the US to like, get their $2,000 or their $2,500 if they could prove that the breadwinner was wrongfully killed in the drone strike. It's a mess.
1: <sighs> it's, it's frustrating to hear. <laughs> I, I'm also curious what you think on term, from your own research and from your own writing about this, what your sense of the sort of drivers of development for war machines in in the global terror ended up being, did it end up being the occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq demanding or the military believing that they demanded? New tools, new ways of engaging, new ways of attacking and occupying? Or were the seeds of this already emerging as soon as the terror attack happened, as soon as the towers fell? Were contractors mobilizing? Were- yeah, so that's a really great question. So some of the stuff
0: predates it. Obviously, we've been talking about the B 52, but like the Predator itself, right, was used for surveillance. Um, in, in Bosnia, right? It was used in the Balkan Wars by the U.S. It wasn't as a, as a scout. It has its earlier date there. Um, there was talk it had been floated also for use by the uh, DEA for uh, drug interdiction. There's um, the way that the war on terror basically picks up every horrible idea from the uh, war on drugs and codifies it and then throws a Pentagon budget at it instead of a DOJ budget at it is, um, is horrific and be discussed um, But there's some specific stuff that emerged directly from observation on the ground the biggest one of those i think this is a good time to talk about is the the mrap or the mine resistant ambush protected it's a sort of catch-all for a family of vehicles um if you've seen them in the news recently it's probably because your town has one and doesn't need it um they're a huge military surplus they're given to police Mm -hmm. a lot um and they are the reason we have them is is twofold and uh, the immediate one is when the U.S. went to war in Afghanistan, but especially when the U.S. went to war in Iraq, it did so without vehicles designed for patrolling and um, doing an occupation against an insurgency. Um Humvees are great if you need to get a few guys across open fields and then get them out and into cover and shooting. That's their job. That's what the Humvee does. They're not great if you're going to be driving on roads that are filled with um, explosives placed there by people who do not want your military there. The MRAP's um, big innovation, it's a family of vehicles, but basically MRAP is the sort of the catch-all for all of them, is it has one heavy, solid V-shaped hull um, it's on suspension, partly why it makes horrible police vehicles, they tend to roll over. They're, they're super top heavy, but it's designed to drive. If it drives over an explosion, the shape and weight of the vehicle dissipates the explosion so that the people inside don't die. They just get thrown about and have uh, brain injuries instead. Um, very, very uh, savvy design choices there. Yeah, so that was one that was driven that after uh, there was the big insurgency in Iraq, primarily drove it, and then they were also shipped to Afghanistan instead. Um, and that was one where there's like a big thing. There's like the. Uh the Pentagon produces reports like the the specific, the Joint MRAP Task Force produced a report called This Truck Saved My Life about how great it was. And of course, the Joint MRAP tra- uh, Task Force is going to say the MRAP was awesome. Um, but it was a sort of, we're going to mobilize, we're going to get uh, all our big defense manufacturers to build us this specific kind of vehicle, which we needed a lot because we didn't anticipate booby-trapped roads or roadside bombs or explosives as a big, big part of how the war would be fought. Um, and and that's a deep misreading of history. And the MRAP's origins come, and this is a, a great, ominous sound, put your, uh, your Christopher Nolan sound effect in here, but uh, it comes from Rhodesia, the Rhodesian South African <laughs> military experience, which are not great militaries to find yourself <laughs> emulating ever, but they were fighting insurgencies. And they're like, oh, it turns out that... F- Fertilizer and explosives are fairly easy to combine and you can make bombs easily and that destroys vehicles in long occupations. Um, and so they designed the first ones and then that's when the MRAP team reached back is like, oh, there's a way to do this and they're tasked with building the thing. That's what they think. They're going, oh, we're going to build a vehicle that can do this for us and not like, should we be looking at why... Rhodesia and South Africa needed these and maybe change anything on there. That's a, that's a, a policy level discussion, yeah. but it didn't come up at all when this was being developed.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, <laughs> no, no coincidence.
1: Think about the semi-colonial states? There were not, there's nothing to do with, they have nothing to do with us.
2: <laughs> and here I was talking earlier about, about militaries practicing in yeah. other countries
3: yeah and i mean i think also no coincidence as well right that like you know we're very con you know we you know the military the pentagon <laughs> very <laughs> self-consciously emulating uh you know the 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 vehicles and tactics uh you know of like rhodesia and south uh south africa and uh you know it was almost as if it was predetermined that these vehicles would come home to roost in like you know a in like small town police departments as you were saying right they they functionally do not operate well in those uses. There, there's absolutely, not only is there no reason for a police department to have an MRAP, but they also, as you were just laying out, like, like they don't work well, right? They have a tendency to roll over. They're very top heavy, as you were saying, but uh, it, it does seem like there's a, a little bit of a, of a, a predeterminedness uh, designed into the technology that like its ultimate home would be, uh, you know, back to do like pacification of the public um back home right
0: i mean and that's sort of the thing and like the there's there's a lot of like where counterinsurgency um bleeds into aggressive policing is like it's a that's a line you draw on a spectrum it's not a hard distinction between them um during vietnam the same companies were selling the us military on um, tear gas based on how effective it was used against protesters in the states. And they were selling uh, police departments on tear gas based on how effective it was for crowd dispersal by the US military. The sales pitch is different. The product is the same. Um, And it's a lot of, oh, here's a tool we can use that can make uh, people comply or scatter. It's very interesting. The pitches were But it's a thing where you see this sort of this interplay between what does it mean to occupy without the consent of the populace? Um, And that's that was fundamentally the problem and the way it wasn't the problem any piece of military technology could solve. There was lots of attempts to make the military much better. And then sort of delegitimize um, the Taliban or uh, ISIS as it later emerged in Afghanistan or um, the various groups fighting in Iraq and also the ISIS that emerged in Iraq. Um, there were lots of attempts to have the military be effective against this and to work with like local militaries effective against it. But the military cannot build legitimacy of a government or make the government capable of provisioning services better. and. A lot of the ways that this process happened, this is sort of where we get to the the bigger structural flaw, is that the government that the U.S. helped basically set up in Afghanistan and set up with the participation of some Afghan leaders, it was a really centralized government that was great at accepting U.S. contracts and receiving direct input from the U.S. Um, and it was not good at governing. And it's an, obviously the story of corruption is there, but the corruption is built in into how the U.S. made it easy to accept and to handle U.S. money. If you're flowing it through a central place, it's the easiest way to to skim. And you're not doing anything to build any sort of local thing. And you're also building a huge dependence on continued access to U.S. funding directly. And the war creates the space for this to continue. And then you can say, well, oh... Um, There was a cliche, it was cliche in 2013, 2014, that generals would say, oh, the war in Afghanistan has reached a turning point. And it meant nothing except that they should continue to get to do what they're doing. And it just kept happening. We saw it when Obama did the the soft launch of a withdrawal in in 2014. It's like, oh, surely my successor will handle this well. Um, And did a gentle... But it was a soft launch. And that's when most of the the NATO allies who were there and other countries who had joined the international mission, they all left in 2014. And they're like, we're going to see. But maybe the next president will figure it out. And I can't figure it out. Um, And then the first thing that Trump does, he's like, what's the biggest bomb I can use? And he gets the biggest bomb he can use. And he bombs ISIS in Afghanistan. (laughs)
3: I fucking forgot about that—the the the big motherfucking bomb or whatever <laughs> it was called. The mother of all bombs, right? <laughs> the mother the of mother all bombs. the Motherfucking bomb.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Amazing.
0: Yeah, there was a USA Today graphic that I saw on like the front page of the local paper here, and it was the physical size comparison of the Moab to uh, little man, to to little boy and fat man, which were the two atomic bombs. The kiloton difference is radically different. Mm-hmm. Those are atomic bombs are much more powerful in a smaller package. But it was like, look how big. Look at This bomb is physically larger than the atomic bombs that were dropped. It's like, this is the most useless graphic, but I get that it calms the president down from trying to drop an H-bomb on Afghanistan. A mess, mm-hmm. a mess. And, uh, and all of wartech was thrown into this mix of how do we solve the political problem by divorced from any any political process by doing violence better and smarter and that's sort of where you get the silicon valleyization of the war is when you get to better and smarter application of violence Violence, here
3: So you know we've been talking a, lo- a lot about the the, the heavy ordnance and the heavy vehicles, you know the you know land vehicles, air power, the bombs, all of that. Um, but obviously, of course, there is you know this this is the digital age now. So we got to have you know the best and in, uh, information technology uh, included in the 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 forever war. Um, and with that, you know, and with that, and with that kind of Silicon Valley mindset, uh, which is not new, right? And importantly, and this is something we will absolutely get to shortly. That this is this is not new. That uh, you know, this you know, Silicon Valley companies have been uh, you know deeply entangled in bed with the Pentagon, in bed with these you know various initial agencies. But I think one of the things that they really uh, lead the way in selling is that computers computers will you know oh you have this problem and you and you the the big dumb military brute um, your mindset is we can bomb our problems right we can just bomb them away no 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 what you need to do is you need to to control the problems right through surveillance through information through data through processing that that is actually the solution here um, and so so through that we have this like you know and and I think the a segue here is you know the there is a lot of coverage about how the the Taliban now has access to uh you know this big giant biometric database right that was abandoned you know in in this like rapid Uh, you know, withdrawal from Afghanistan, which, you know, also raising a lot of questions about how this stuff is framed, right. In the sense of like, Oh, well, you know, because of our rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan, we actually, you know, we not only left a lot of vehicles and, and, and assault rifles and pistols and shit, you know, there, but we also left, you know, Biometric databases and uh, uh, what the the the, the hide uh, technology, right? The H uh, I I D E, which is a, a biometric tool for collecting um, like iris scans, uh, fingerprints, you know, face face recognition, uh, demographics. You know, um, where what like one of these like little handheld, like um, like briefcase size tools could store 20,000 profiles of individual uh you know creating a biometric profiles of individuals and you know the, so there was a lot of reporting about how like we've also left all of this information technology in the hands of the Taliban not asking the question of like why were we fucking using that in the first place and what was the purpose but now it's bad because the Taliban have it right yeah, so
0: the Hyde is a fascinating because this is this is tech used by the military to solve a problem of governance without any real sense um, that I have found in, in the early stuff, and I've been poking around to see like what were the initial reports when it was laid out in uh, first I think first deployed in like 2007, and then uh, several years after that of like what happens if the U.S. is not in control of this, or if a U.S. ally is not in control of this thing. Um, so the acronym, because uh, DOD is, is sick with acronyms, I'm just going to say it. it's Handheld Interagency Identity Detection Equipment. Uh, that's how you get to hide. Um, just, they, they love acronyms there, <laughs> there so much. Um, and this thing is... The problem that is presented there are sort of two problems that this is trying to solve, and then they're giving it to to soldiers uh, to solve it. But the problem, the first problem is um, the US wants to make sure that the locals it contracts with to um, do the jobs on base, like the, 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 uh, if you're coming on, if you're doing food service, if you're doing delivery, if you're doing anything, if you're if you're a Afghan employee to work on a base in the US military, or even if you're coming in toward the Afghan military, if you're in the Afghan military, the police forces and you're being trained, they want a way to reliably know who you are and check it. And the answer that was always given um, is that there weren't reliable identification cards. There wasn't anything like like a like a driver's license or anything like that. And um Partly we should acknowledge, right, that, the, that the, the U.S. entered the war in 2001. Afghanistan has been at war more or less continuously in some capacity since 1979. If there was a great system before that, it would have fallen apart entirely. Um, it's a long time to go without sort of a consistent, reliable central government providing these things. So that's private, but also I don't recall having like to get my iris scanned for my driver's license. There are ways to create legibility without going to biometrics, and what you lose in the process. Um, and if you're if you're thinking of this purely military. Terms right? It's like oh well, what if they give they make a fake or they give it to someone else right? The biometric is hard, hard or impossible to fool. They will say impossible, and I am skeptical of any claim that that a tech problem is impossible to to prove, fool. But certainly, you can't change your iris. Um, that's not a thing that's particularly easy or broadly accessible to to do at all. And the idea is that you would then protect. Your bases, you would you would find it. You'd have a known database of militants, or at least you have a database of known non-militants, and you'd be able to weed it out. And that would be a layer of security. And then the U.S. handed this off. The U.S. or sort of did this in partnership with any handoff is sort of air quotesy, but they did it in partnership with the Afghan government. Um, And so a lot of those units were not just abandoned by the the U.S. We don't know the exact breakdown on that. I'm sure the Pentagon will come up with. Numbers, if it feels so pressed, but a lot of them were abandoned by the Afghan military. which thought, like, we don't need to keep fighting this. Um, it's clear the way this is going. Our leader has left on a plane. This is not a thing I want to keep doing because I will die. And then they maybe not think, oh, I should blow up the machine that holds my information. But so one of the other things. So this is something that comes up. Um, Each device has its own capacity for how much data can hold. And then when you had access to the internet, which is not a given, you would upload the information from your local device to a national database. And those national databases were then all held by the Afghan government. So each, and the reason you had to have a lot of local storage, right, is because the connectivity was bad and you needed something reliable in the field. Um, And this is all operating from the assumption, right? That You're scanning information to make sure that people are not threats to your operations, to to the people also with you on the base, that the information is accurate. Um, And there isn't a tremendous amount like, Oh, it's a, it's sort of siloed stuff until it's uploaded to a shared database. And then the shared database is there. And Oh, maybe it's indecipherable until you get someone who is familiar with it, or you can reverse engineer it. You can bring in someone who knows how to read databases. There are ways to decodify and demystify this. Um, and I get the angle of the military pro- is, again, like the the grunt-handed, they're still using a biometric scanner, but it's they're trying to solve a political problem If we don't know who to trust. And local enough locals here have been part of an insurgency that we do not feel safe without getting an ID that cannot be fooled. Um, and those are huge political problems that they're just throwing this machine at. They are throwing this machine at. And the consequence, the... Um, that has gotten a lot of coverage, is now you have a database of people who worked for the U.S. directly.
3: Exactly. And this is a lot of the reporting, right? Is like now this is a database that the Taliban can use to find uh, people that were affiliated with or working with the, the U.S. Uh, in some way and then target those people. Um, you know, I, but I think a lot of the the, the reporting on this uh, elides the fact that like this isn't some... Uh, this isn't the tool fall. This isn't just an instance of the tool falling into the wrong hands, and now it's going to be used for the wrong purposes. This was the purpose of the tool from the beginning, and also I want to I want to give our, our the listeners a little bit of a, a of a lineage here as well. Right? like where the it's also the case that this isn't unique, right? That these like. What's what's different is that now it's biometrics and it's a, you know, it's a biometric database, but like these kinds of databases, you know, that have been, that have been fall, fallen into the wrong hands, quote unquote, has been the case for for over a hundred years, um, of, of, you know, the, of information and computational technologies being used for population control and war, uh, settings. Um, you know, you know, it's, it's a weird coincidence that for example, uh, you know, I, I think people might be aware of you know IBM selling you know its punch card technologies to um, to the German Nazi Party, um, which was then used to keep tracks keep track of of, uh, Jewish people and to find Jews and to, you know, use that technology. Right. But then it's also the case that, you know, these, these kinds of technologies in various forms from the punch card up to other kinds of databases, uh, you know, up to now the hide, uh, with biometrics has, you know, that has been the case for a very long time. Like, you know, it, it, you, you just can't continue to use the, the excuse that it has fallen into the wrong hands without one day reflecting that maybe there is something inherent in the design of these kinds of uh, databases that continually um, mean that they provide the infrastructure for atrocity.
0: And it's something where the sort of military requirements of the tech that has to be usable by a 19-year-old, it has to be simple enough. It has to be rugged to carry around. It has to have its own local memory so you can check your local database against the people you're like seeing on patrol. All of these features of the tech make the databases on it sort of susceptible to that in a special way where you're designing for durability. And what I remember writing about it, it was uh, years ago, I want to say like 2014, where DARPA was considering a technology of like, how do we make electronics that automatically fall apart in the rain? Which the idea being that like, you can sort of build a sensor and then as soon as it gets wet, it's no longer any data on it is gone. It wipes itself clean, it falls apart. And like, it's DARPA. They think of wacky things all the time. But the idea of you want a device that wipes its own memory. You want a thing that clears itself because if you're building something, if you're building a database of people, there should be some consideration about what happens. I mean, you know what you're using it for and what happens if the people you trust the least use it for that same purpose. Um, and that's not a thing that comes up a tremendous amount in the conversations I've had with people um, in the military industry or in acquisitions by and large is there, there's a lot of, of best case thinking. There's a, we know how we are using this, we need this now, it's very important that our guys in the field have this. They'll say warfighters, it's a horrible word, do not say it, but they will say, we need our warfighters to have this. Um, and there's nothing about what happens to our allies if, say, 14 years from when we implement this database, um, our immigration process is completely fucked, we cannot get the people we hired and relied on in the field out and also we build a database and the database is in the hand of the people we were fighting against. There's no thinking about that. And it's not like, and it's not that the hands are obviously like, I'm not, I'm not thrilled. I don't particularly trust any of the governments of Afghanistan right now, but um, the problem is that you built the database, right? The problem is you built the database without thinking about what happens next. And maybe the plan was you hand it off to a stable government in Afghanistan and they use it against the same enemy forever. And that's just so rosy. Red teams exist in military
3: thinking to say, what if not that? Right, Ex- exactly. And again, it's, it's this like, it is that like a historical rosy thinking as well to think that like this time is different. This time will be different, right? Like we can, we can imagine our mission impossible, you know, this sensor will self-destruct, uh, you know, whatever bullshit. But like history shows us that's not the case. Like I'm thinking, uh, you know, I, I just uh, just like uh, very recently, Will Meyer um, had a great article in The Baffler looking at this like uh you know the the entanglements between tech companies and you know the uh militarized uh domination and oppression of groups of people and how these things are interlinked and he he has uh uh, an example that just like you know just links into this lineage so perfectly where he talks about how um He says, "Quote, you know the the HP way or HP, you know Hewlett Packard, right? One of the first big uh, Silicon Valley computer companies. um, You know the HP way's man, you know HP's management structure uh, was." replicated far and wide, um, leading Business Week to declare that the pair's greatest innovation was managerial, not technical. The HP way would be appropriated by the Department of Defense, which took the management approach of California's tech industry and funneled it back into the war effort. And here he's talking about in the '80s, right? This isn't now. This is in the '80s, right? And so, uh, as Nixon's deputy secretary of defense, David Packard of H of Hewlett Packard reformed the Pentagon's bureaucracy and management style while overseeing weapons procurement. And then it goes on to talk. He goes on to talk about how in 1980, after he left the DOD and returned to the company. Packard was criticized for expanding into South Africa and for the role that HP machines played in advancing apartheid. Soon after the state of Nebraska passed a resolution expressing its support for boycotting corporations engaged in the country, Packard declared, quote, I'd much rather lose business with Nebraska than with South Africa. And now, uh, and what Will Meyer is talking about here and relaying this history is that today, HP, we don't think about HP much anymore, right? Like, this seems like a dinosaur of the computer age, right? Like, who has an HP computer or whatever? However, where HP has its biggest footprint still is in Israel, where HP Israel, which was founded in 1998... Uh, according to the company's website, Israel, quote, is one of the few countries where HP has a massive presence. And here it's because HP's servers power Israel's Aviv system, which is a population registry that is the basis of Israel's card system, what some critics describe as a mechanism for maintaining institutionalized racial discrimination. So it's like, Weird coincidence here that, you know, not only are, you know, with every atrocity, there's a tech company there ready to provide the infrastructure, but importantly, and this is where I think this entanglement between the Silicon Valley mindset of how of both the technical and managerial way of solving a problem combines with Silicon Valley's own interest in profit making, they ultimately don't care. If the thing is only used, you know, in, in this one instance by this one party, you know, by, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the Hyde system in Afghanistan, right? Oh, it's okay as long as the U.S. is using that, right? Ultimately, they don't care. What they care about is providing uh, a A battle tested technology that can then be sold for a profit to whoever wants to buy it, right? And we see this with some, with like uh, Palantir, right? A company we've talked extensively about on TMK, um, but with Palantir doing that, right? Building these technologies for the global war on terror, um, for, you know, and for counterinsurgency, for tracking, you know, using its social networking analysis and and these kind and these like biometric databases and population registries to track down, you know, supposed terrorists. And then after developing those technologies in the in the battlefield. Rolling them out, bringing them back home, saying now we have a solution for policing. Oh, there's a pandemic. Well, now we have a solution for public health, right? Like all of these things have a tendency uh, to creep and spread, right? Like this is not a this is not a, a a bug, but a feature of of these technologies, and one that you just laid out, Kelsey, is seemingly one that the military itself is willfully. Uh, uh, turns a blind eye to right oh it won't happen this time it won't happen this time yeah but it's happened every single time for the last hundred years yeah but this time is different (laughs) and it's it it, it also makes me think of uh
1: solutionism concept but his also his more recent reframing of it where he talks about how apps have emerged but apps as a veneer for like technology companies or venture capital strapped enterprises that solve social problems or solve some problem a larger institution or agency has with um with like some sort of privatized and digitized business model that like a lot of these will like they are proliferating in, in a way that also lines up with like tech companies also and the government in general needing like other actors other entities to kind of come into the fold it seems and pursue military action inside of another country or, you know, pursue a healthcare system inside of one country or develop like some other enterprise. It's unwilling to, incapable of unwilling to do, or why or like understands that to do so itself might cause backlash or, but that, and then I'm also curious if like, you know, from your sense of it, it is, it is these tech companies understanding the role that they have or the opportunity they have. And there's like a sort of cynical thing going on where the state is eager to have them fill that role because it can't, you know, it can't put foot, uh, boots on the ground as much as it would like in some places, as an example. Or if it's like, you know, this is just, this really is just like a continuation of previous, uh, patterns with the, the differences being like some of the players and some of the, and some of the contracts and the technologies, but that, that larger political economic structure. Is the same? Or if there have been new things I've been introduced, you think? I mean, I think it's it's there's a lot that's very similar, right? I think the, the history of Silicon Valley goes back to
0: um building missiles, and then the electronics to guide missiles. That's a big early part, right? That's how you get it. That's how you have a hobbyist computer industry on the side of like Lockheed Martin missile development or Lockheed then. The Mar- I think the Martin merger happens later. But you see so you have that, right? There's always been this sort of tie where tech is in there. What's new and what's um, sort of changed? It goes with this sort of this emphasis on um, algorithmic processing. That's a big one that I cover at a tremendous Amount these days, it keeps coming up. The Pentagon has finally gotten around to algorithms as a buzzword. Um, is this idea that the code sort of hides accountability? Um, I was, I was just, I listened to your um, episode on like a tech and how, like, in the way that you can sort of shift a decision onto, oh, the algorithm did it, rather than say this is the person who denied you your claim. You can't trace that back, um, and we're going to see it a lot more. We're seeing it now already. It was sort of the big, the biggest. I guess the, the newsiest breach we saw with military tech in Silicon Valley was over Project Maven, which was a Google project contracted out to the Pentagon to develop an algorithm that could recognize objects in drone footage. There's uh, some, some debate over whether that was tracking people or just other objects, and I just wouldn't rule out the possibility it was absolutely uh, designed to figure out people in images, too. Um, and there was a there was backlash. There was some major backlash. And we see like the Pentagon clarifying, like here's our role, or not the Pentagon clarifying, the Pentagon tried to say, why aren't they supporting our, our brave fighters who are by like, giving us algorithms so drones can find things better? But the uh, Google and then Microsoft also had to issue statements about like, here's how we're doing military AI ethically. Here are our principles or here's our principles of AI development. And then they're like, subcontracting out to the Pentagon without like the Google name attached. Um, there's still a deep web of ties there and you sort of get this kind of similar opacity, I want to say, to how military acquisitions and evaluations happen and how um, tech evaluations happen are like how, how tech works. So we see the revelation of what does tech actually do. And unless you're going into the code, right, it, it can be hard for people to discern. It's certainly beyond my my capacity and the military keeps they will publish some evaluations and there are inspector general reports and then there's a huge weird process where you have like you can contest a publicly bidded contract. There are still federal rules they have to follow, but as soon as they can, they'll and they feel like they want to, they'll throw national security over it, right? I can tell you some of the back and forth over like F-35 engine replacement debates or things or, or that acquisition process. I can tell you hardly anything about the B-21 stealth bomber process because that got thrown as any detail about this is too classified for us to talk about publicly. And that's sort of like, I have no idea. Anything Palantir produces works as well as its sales team says. Um, I think it's right to take them at their word and be skeptical on an activist space because they, they are certainly aiming at that. But that's opaque. That's super opaque. It's designed to be opaque, and then when they're selling to police who are also deeply opaque, right? The Palantir Gotham is the city version of like their military tech, right? Like, oh. Um and there's no there's no accountability and then what we have is we have this sort of handshake agreement between the companies that make tech that does that brings people into life or death conflict right that's what an intelligence product ultimately does is it tracks is it finds people and it says should use of force be used against these people and where do you find them to do so that's that's what intelligence products do and often they say no but sometimes they say yes um and it's all opaque it's Design opaque, there's a lot of opacity built into the system. Um, Not to to quickly go back to hide part of the problem with it is that it was so, it couldn't work if it was actually classified with the encryption standards that requires because you needed any grunt to do it. You needed to have it outside of any meaningful classification system. So you could encrypt it. You could do other things to it, but you couldn't have it within the military's own here's how we know to keep secrets process because then it couldn't work and you couldn't share it with a partner, with a partner country. Um, And that's wacky and that's a wild thing and you get get just a tremendous amount of opacity, which combines really poorly when we're relying on military tech to sort of solve fundamentally political problems. (laughs)
3: This reminds me very much so of a of a really great paper that Louisa Moore, who's a political geographer, who has, you know, been been studying this for a very long time, she wrote a paper in 2009, which kind of serves as a really nice snapshot of so much of what was happening around that time. Um, the paper is called Algorithmic War, Everyday Geographies of the War on Terror. And, you know, it's very interesting to, to watch her uh, try to provide this very early analysis of this concept of algorithmic war, and how it's, it was, and and the contours of it and the technologies of it as well right like she's focused she focuses a lot on um uh, uh on RFID technologies which seems so like quaint and old fashioned now although they're still everywhere and they're used in supply chains all the time but you know these radio frequency identification tags that you know in the post you know 9/11 and the rise of Department of Homeland Security right RFID technologies were proposed and then implemented for passports and visas and transportation systems, right? These were meant to be uh, kind of, you know, global passwords of mobility, right, that we had to have in order to move around. But, you know, and she traces how, like, You know, Tom Ridge, who was the US Secretary of Homeland Security in 2005, um, and his undersecretary, uh, Asa Hutchinson, um, both resigned their government positions and then established each established businesses supplying uh, expert systems in the burgeoning homeland security market, right? Like Ridge ended up taking the directorship of Savvy Technology, which was a RFID company. Um, You know, Hutchinson moved on to establish. Um, the Hutchinson Group, which is a homeland security consulting company that held stocks in uh, Fortress America Acquisitions Corporation, uh, which was a company trading in the public procurement of private security technologies like RFID. Let me say that again for the people at home, Fortress America Acquisition Corporation. <laughs> it's, 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 it's- if I, if we made it up,
1: it would seem stupid. It would seem a stu- it would be a stupid bit.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, uh, Louisa Moore goes on to talk about how um, algorithmic war is a specific appearance of uh, of what she uh, remarks as a kind of. So you know, the the German political theorist uh, uh, Clausewitz um, famously said that politics or war is the continuation of politics by other means. But, uh, you know, Michel Foucault inverted that to say uh, that this is actually the continuation of war by other means, right? So politics is no longer the primary here. War is the primary. Elisa Moore goes on to talk about how this new concept of algorithmic war um, was a way of bringing the war home, of making it. A totalizing mobilization that enrolls everybody and everything into it, not just in Fallujah, not just in Kabul. Right. But but at home um, in New York in Los Angeles in your small town. Right. Like this is what that looks like. And it's, it's wild to, you know, to read this piece. You know, Louisa Moore's article was published in 2009. Uh, a lot of the, the research that she's drawing on is in that first kind of like, you know, five years of the post 9-11. And to see how much of what she's talking about coming true in ways that even... Uh, even, you know, people like Luis at that time did not fully predict or anticipate coming true in such a deep way. We haven't even talked about how, like, uh, like ICE, for example, right? Like, think about something like hide, right? As we just laid out, you know, the hide tool was meant to be a kind of thing. Uh, it was meant to be like a customs and immigration enforcement for Afghanistan, right? You know, the, the Business Insider just reported uh, an article that just came out, uh, you know, days ago about how Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are are in a bidding war, <laughs> well, a, a, a bidding competition with each other for um, three different contracts from ICE uh, worth up to three hundred million dollars in total to build. This Raven platform, uh, which is meant, you know, Raven is also a, an acronym here, but a uh, uh, repository for analytics in a virtualized environment is what Raven so, is a, an acronym for. So it's like the for. Facebook
1: tool, right? Don't <laughs> want you just sit down there in 3D space. Facebook, what is the workspace? <laughs>
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but the 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 purpose of this tool is that it will ingest quote ingest data from tens of thousands of sources, um, including uh, surveillance uh, footage, biometrics, social media data. Um, and then makes it searchable, shareable between ICE agents, and graphable by values like time and place, according to internal ICE documents. This is that continuation of war by other means, right? This is the way in which the war comes home. This is the way in which these information infrastructures that we talk about don't just die, once the once the U.S. military says, okay, we're done with it, we've done everything we can with it, abandon it to the Taliban, right? Like, no, it, it spreads in other ways. It becomes part of our everyday lives. Like, we live in a time that is so thoroughly defined um, by that post nine eleven Department of Homeland Security mindset, that I think we don't even realize the waters that we swim in anymore because they are it is so normal and it is so every day. How long until uh, police officers, which act very much like army or marine grunts, right? Like their like their role. Um, in terms of like data, you know, information collection, uh, public pacification, patrolling, like it's almost indistinguishable, right, in terms of their tactics and technologies and the, the ultimate purposes. How long until, you know, those hide tools uh, that are now army surplus um, start being sold to the LAPD or the NYPD, right? <laughs> I mean, that stuff starts at the border it starts with ice, it starts with the DEA, and then it spreads from there, right? The border is now everywhere.
1: It's beautiful. I mean, we want a land of checkpoints, right? And I think, (laughs) and I I, 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 (laughs) frankly, I think it's a beautiful thing. You know, I'm also curious, like certain types of technologies that develop, like for example, the ubiquity, or the attempts to develop like these biometrics, Uh, Checkpoints and control systems to lock in or check in people. Do we see like specific like these specific types of technologies also flourish specifically after the global war on terror, or they have always been present but in different forms? I mean, always of course they've always been present, like at the border, right? But but have have they undergone new metastasis or new developments? in the wake of the war on terror?
3: I think you're right, Ed, but I think you're also, I think this is the mindset that they haven't always been present. <laughs> Our conception of borders has changed drastically over this last 20 years compared to what borders meant pre-9-11, um, compared to borders in the immediate post-9-11 and now and, and up to today. Are mm-hmm. it, It's a paradigm shift, right? It seems like it's always been present, but there was really quite a massive paradigm shift in terms of what borders meant um, before and after 9-11. that's true.
0: One of the things where, like, the tech shows up at the border, but the border is extremely broadly uh, defined, right? We've been sure the the 100-mile zone of the border that counts um, not just the land borders with Mexico and Canada, but also um, any, uh, it counts all of the coast. Um, So there's, like, a... A fraction of the U.S. population is further than a hundred miles. Um, it's further inland than hundred miles from all of that. Um, and we saw it. We saw it, like at the um, at the uh, the George Floyd uprising in in Minneapolis last summer, where we saw um, DHS flew Predator or fluids. They called them Predator B. It's a Reaper. They flew DHS flew a Reaper over the protest. Right, that's a thing that happened. And there was a like in twenty thirteen. I want to say was the, maybe 2012 was the first use of a predator type drone for law enforcement where they were like tracking some cattle. That, so that was like, Oh, it's rural. It's close to the border. It's like cattle hustling. We're not like or cattle wrestling. We're not particularly like that's a villain that seems somewhat more manageable or crockable. Or it's like, Oh yeah, this guy's still cows So we're going to wait till the people are asleep on our thermal imaging cameras. And then we're going to go raid the compound and get the people and their guns and their cows. Uh, but they but we have but it's now over protests right that you re- regularly have this and there's other tech that is developed sort of um the cameras and i think this is sort of a, a subtext of all of it, right is that the drone is flashy the drone is a thing you can point to here is the object this is the physical embodiment of the war but like the camera systems can go on towers right like i think the sort of like i parked at the grocery store the other day and there's one of those um Little sentry towers with like the the very the two pod camera pods underneath it, like a solar panel powering it, and to have that scale of economy, I mean, there's obviously been a home surveillance camera market since there have been uh, closed circuit cameras, but the kind of cameras we have and the proliferation out there sort of just flows outwards from a huge amount of military investment into how do we get. A reliable small camera on a thing and now we have those everywhere right like when the point when a grocery store can afford uh surveillance technology that the military would have been asking for 20 years ago is a wild place to be um for sort of it's a continuity but it's a continuity where like the villains keep getting
1: their wish lists. yeah <laughs> oh and then and adding to it because it's
3: not enough never enough it's never enough that's that's the imperative of innovation is that it's never enough yeah we have to go faster I, I think we're, you know, we've been going for a while, and there's still so much more to get into. And I, I think we will, you know, we, we will save um, a lot of the uh, broader discussion of both this entanglement between Silicon Valley and the and, and the military, um, and that those kind of broader questions of, you know, the forever war, uh, you know, what happens next. Those, you know, we'll save that for the Patreon feed. But I, I think we would be remiss uh, to not at least. You'll mention and and talk briefly about, um, Kelsey, can you tell us how the CIA found Bin Laden? (laughs) So,
0: um, yeah, this is a COVID news hook, too, now, where the CIA had a uh, posed as a vaccination campaign in rural Pakistan to find people and see and match dna to dna they had of close associates and they figured it out by um impersonating health workers and then they got this dna information and that's how we found it after all of the all of the surveillance that's a part that's a detail that's i think it's in zero dark 30 but don't take anything on that as anything like close to fact i think they do include a scene of it um They give it, I think, equal weight to that in torture, but like it was DNA 100% and torture 0% for how how they found him. It was just, you know, impersonating doctors. There was a study I was just pulling up about like how you can trace vaccine hesitancy still in that area to – and that that was a decade ago, right? That was a decade ago, and you can still find – Vaccine hesitancy in that community, which is understandable, given that the last time there was a big vaccine drive, it led to um, a bunch of helicopters and special forces going and killing a bunch of people.
2: It's it's funny that they use DNA to track Bin Laden. It's like uh, what they're doing now to find cold case serial killers, hoping that when their family members uploads their DNA to Ancestry, and they get some type of a DNA hit, like familial hit for uh, DNA from decades-old murders. I mean, that's how they cracked the uh, the Golden State Killer. So it's not surprising that, that that's how they would find Bin Laden.
1: Uh, I don't like that DNA shit.
0: So one of the things with that one is really interesting, because right there was that book that uh, Patton Oswald's late wife, whose name I am forgetting uh, my apologies, she had basically pinned it down. And like the thing was like, Michelle yes, thank
2: McNamara. you, um,
0: was, oh, it's probably this specific cop. Um, so gotten got in really close and like the thing was like, oh, they're all attributing it to DNA, figuring it out when like the, the obstacle was that police weren't giving up one of their own. It wasn't that you needed to do tech or you needed to do DNA to solve it. You needed to break Omerta among the police. Right. <laughs> or you could say it was DNA and you could just encourage everyone to upload an- their DNA to Ancestry.com. That's a
2: that's an easier selling <laughs> thing. In reality, it was the fucking thin blue line bullshit. bullshit. Shit
3: all a very good uh and 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 telling case study there of like how all of the kind of like secondary and tertiary outcomes of these systems then in a post hoc way become used as like alibis or justifications for why that system was actually good right like what and why and why they should why not only why they should uh, exist but why they should continue to go on existing forever uh you know You're doing a really tough job here, Kelsey. I've been thinking about this all throughout the episode of like, you know, it's, it's impossible to keep track of all this right there, there's just the all all of the 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 military tech stuff all of the systems and, and and but then on top of that all of the the ways in which they roll out to broader use right the ways in which uh you know uh whether it's policing or border enforcement or whatever whatever right cold case crack you know just like you know anything possible public health uh it, it's like it's impossible on one hand to keep in our minds at you know at once just the sheer amount of uh, of, of military and intelligence uh, technologies that have been um, either developed or have been around for a long time and then deployed over this last 20 years um, of the the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Global war on terror. Uh, impossible to keep in mind. A, a comprehensive like compendium of all of these things, let alone provide a comprehensive accounting of their consequences, both the ones that are immediately obvious because they've already come to pass, or the ones that are immediately obvious because uh, they will soon come to pass, right? Like. It almost it's it's almost like it's a built-in feature of the system that it becomes so sprawling so complex that no person no groups of people no you know networks of watchdogs that are their entire full-time job and expertise to keep track of this and try to hold it to some account can possibly do it because the system is so ever, Ever sprawling and uh, and but all uh, on top of that, all of the secrecy involved in it, just like it, it's it's trying to do some kind of twentieth anniversary retrospective of just the military tech side of uh, the, the 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 wars. Is is its own like just massive undertaking? (laughs) I I will never be without a beast. Yeah, yeah, you never will, (laughs) because it's the forever war, baby. (laughs) Yeah, we we we've tried to provide that uh, that that beast that Dod uh, beastery here, right? That Dungeons and Dragons, D O D, vistory here, a Pokedex, um, if you will, uh, you know. Yeah, a Pokedex, a <laughs> Pokedex of uh, of atrocities. <laughs> <laughs> this piece of tech, and, not and,
1: this killing machine, evolved into this killing machine, which evolved into this killing machine, but only when you infuse mm-hmm. it with this magical stone. That uh, is just uh, a black book. It's a black book of, of uh, Pentagon budget. You get that, and then it becomes, <laughs> then it reaches its final form.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking of one, you know, one one thing that we haven't even touched on, which is very much linked into all of this, is the the networks of of uh, DHS fusion centers, right? (laughs) Which is very much the, very much the progenitor of something like the, you know, the ice Raven platform that just talked about that, you know, these big tech companies are trying to, you know, win the contracts to provide the software, right. Or something. And and that links up as well to Jedi, right. The joint enterprise defense initiative, Uh, you know, again, all these fucking acronyms all these stupid acronyms (laughs) i hate it i hate it so much (laughs) i mean you know and and not not only to mention you know we a while ago i encourage listeners to go check it out we did uh do a a a two-part episode with michael richardson on just focusing on Enduro technologies right Which
1: Um, which was in that town that uh kelsey was talking about right and responsible for the border uh checkpoints over there
3: Exactly, yeah, exactly. So, you know, looking at Endural um, and, and, you know, and through that, the you know, the, the, the Endural family of Palantir and all of this Lord of the Rings bullshit uh-huh. as well. I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. And as I think the evolution analogy is, is apt here as well, because these things do continue to uh, evolve in different ways, but they've always got a core um of their original purpose Uh, a core of these older machines uh baked into them it's it's better to think of it as like um an archaeologist you know digging through the different stratas of a civilization to see how uh you know all of these all of these technological systems are built on top of each other, just layers on top of layers on top of layers, and yet it somehow continues to be the same uh, same companies, many of the same people, many of the same uh, government agencies and initials um, that are 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 constantly present. Uh, you know, in bed with each other at every single turn.
0: Well, I'm excited to continue this conversation in in the future, but also I think just by oh, yes. large. Um, <laughs> By and large, right? I think it's important to understand like what these techs are pitched to solve, and that the mm-hmm. way military tech is pitched to solve the problem is um, is very explicitly. Like there was a brief window, um, or I guess a brief window, it was the entire Trump administration where the Pentagon's watchword was lethality, and it made really awkward conversations where like a satellite company would have to say how the satellite contributed to lethality. But in one respect, it was painfully honest because it removed the distance between here's how we are selling a tech to which the military will use to kill people because we think that's what solves this political problem um it was a straight line to that and so i imagine we'll get we'll get more into that um it's certainly a a frame i keep in mind um in all my various writing at various places
3: I think that's great, and that that buzzword of lethality—it reminds me of something else we talked about in our enduro episodes. That one of the things that made uh, Palmer lucky uh, stand out as such a cartoon supervillain, uh, you know, Palmer Luckey, the, you know, the CEO and co-founder of Andurro, um, and also of Oculus, right. We can blame him for that Facebook, uh, virtual workplace bullshit as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his, one of his lesser crimes, uh, <laughs> and, but one of the things that made And made, uh, Palmer Luckey really stand out as such a cartoon supervillain is that, you know, in interviews on TV, where he was like really like hawking, you know, this new startup of his, he talked about how um, unlike the big, the big tech primes of Alphabet and Amazon and Microsoft, right, he was more like the military primes of Raytheon and Boeing because he would uh, not shy away from um, designing technologies uh, in, explicitly for, quote unquote, the kill chain. Right. And so, again, you know, really leaning heavily into this framing of lethality as the purpose of of these technologies. But again, as we've just talked about, right, like that's all marketing bullshit because it's not as if HP uh, or uh, uh, Microsoft or Google or any of these other bigger, you know, legacy incumbents or IBM. Right. It's not as if they also don't. Uh, intentionally build technologies and make hefty profits from the kill chain, from engaging in lethality. They absolutely do. They just don't do it as, in such a flamboyant way as Palmer Lucky, but, but they have a lot more blood on their hands um, than, than Palmer does. Someone like Eric Schmidt you know, uh, has a lot more blood on his hands than 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 palmer lucky does palmer is is uh aspiring to be as soaked in blood as someone like eric schmidt already is um I and mean, yeah, remember i remember when think- he tweeted at you basically that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> One of the few times I had to lock my account because Palmer Lu- <laughs> uh, to weather a storm because Palmer Lucky uh got all of his Palmer Lucky and all of his flackies from um Breitbart uh got you know really dog st- piled dogpiled me uh because I dared to call him out. <laughs> um so very yeah, very interesting times. Um but <laughs> I, I, I want to thank you, Kelsey, so much for joining us for this part one of our 9/11 20th anniversary extravaganza. I, I think you know what we've just talked about in these last few minutes is a is a is a really nice preview of what is more to come in our in the second part of our conversation. Uh, where we will absolutely talk a lot more about Eric Schmidt. We'll talk a lot more about um, the Silicon Valley Pentagon, uh, long-standing, decades-long entanglement there, Uh, and and again, ask these kind of broader questions about this forever war machine, right? Like, it has not ended. You know, just because Biden has uh, started to uh, indicate a, a distaste for the forever war does not mean that this is the end of it whatsoever, um, and so thank you again, Kelsey. Uh, please uh, give us your plugs. Where can people find you? Where can they read your work? Sure, you can find me
0: on Twitter. Uh, too much. You can find me at Substack at Atherton KD. I'm also at Twitter there, and you can find my work regularly appearing in uh, Popular Science and various other fine outlets.
3: Excellent. And we'll throw links to your Twitter and your Substack in this episode description. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. And do you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where uh, on top of a you know, large backlog of episodes, you can continue this conversation with us um, for just $5 a month. Find us there for our hundredth episode, um, which will be dropping later in the week. Until then, never Never, forget, later. Adios.